Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, I thought we'd cover Sir Percival Pott, an English surgeon you may have heard of, as his name is associated with a number of diseases. He was a prolific writer and one of the first of the more scientific surgeons rather than the old barber surgeon model. In fact, he made what is considered the first connection between an environmental exposure and cancer, leading eventually to significant social change. Now, where there's smoke, there's fire, as we'll see in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Percival Pott was born on January 6th of 1714 on Threadneedle Street in London, England, where the Bank of England now stands. His father, depending on the source, was either a greengrocer or a scrivener, which is a type of clerk. Regardless, he died when Percival was only a few months old, leaving his mother to raise the children under constrained circumstances. Luckily, a relative, Joseph Wilcox, the Bishop of Rochester, took responsibility for Percival's education and sent him to a private school in Kent. While the bishop had a career in the church planned for him, Percival had other plans, and instead became an apprentice to Edward Nurse, one of two surgeons at St. Bartholomew's in London. The apprenticeship began when Percival was just 15 years old. The cost was 200 guineas, the equivalent of about 10,000 British pounds today, for seven years of training. Unfortunately, the good bishop picked up the tab, Interesting to think how inaccessible this training must have been for nearly everyone without a rich benefactor. Anyways, during Percival's apprenticeship, he was responsible for the preparation of cadavers for public demonstrations of dissection, assisting in the preparation of lectures on surgery and anatomy, helping with dressings, and assisting on a few surgeries. By 1736, the age of 22, Percival was admitted to the company of barber surgeons after fully passing the examination for a grand diploma. Following graduation, Percival opened up his own private practice while waiting for a hospital position to open. This occurred in 1744 when he became assistant surgeon at St. Bart's and was then promoted to full surgeon in 1749, a position he'd keep until 1787, a span of 38 years. At his retirement, Pott said he had served St. Bart's, quote, as a boy and a man, end quote, for nearly half a century. Now let's take a quick detour to talk about St. Bartholomew's Hospital, as I don't think we've covered it before. It has an interesting origin story, so to speak. In the early part of the 12th century, the English priest and monk, Rahir, took a pilgrimage to Rome. While there, he fell ill with malaria and was taken to an island in the Tiber River, called Tiber Island, which at that time had been a medical center for 12 centuries. Now how is that possible? Well, from ancient times, the water from a well on the island was thought to be curative. During a plague in Rome in 293 BCE, the Senate was instructed to build a temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, by the Sibyl, which is a group of oracles. A delegation was sent out by ship and they obtained a snake from a temple, which was brought on board. The snake immediately curled itself around the ship's mast, which was considered a good omen. Upon their return trip up the Tiber River, the snake slithered off the boat and into the river, whereupon it swam to the Tiber Island. Taking this as a sign, the Romans decided to build the temple there, and it remained a site of healing by the time Rahir arrived 1,200 or so years later. Now, in fact, by the time he arrived, the well mentioned earlier had developed into the altar of the Basilica of St. Bartholomew, who was one of the twelve apostles of Jesus, which had been built in 1100 CE. Now, during Rahir's stay, the apostle St. Bartholomew appeared to him, 
in order that he build a church and hospital upon his return home, specifically in the London suburb of Smithfield. Back in England, Rahir had the Bishop of London make the request to King Henry I, who provided a site in Smithfield where the hospital dedicated to St. Bartholomew still stands. Its founding year was 1123 CE, and it's been said that Rahir himself joined in the healing of patients, as in those early years there would have been more faith healing than anything else. All right, let's get back to Pot. By the time he was made full professor in 1749, he'd already become one of the foremost surgeons of his time. In 1753, he was appointed lecturer of anatomy at Surgeon's Hall, and in 1765 was elected to a fellowship in the Royal Society, an almost unheard of honor for a lowly barber surgeon in those times. So let's take a minute to look at what type of surgeon Pot was through some examples of his writing on the subject of surgical practice. Now, in interesting contrast to Robert Liston from the previous podcast, Pot emphasized the need for surgical technique rather than speed, and condemned, quote, a most absurd custom of measuring the motion of a surgeon's hand as jockeys to that of the feet of a horse by a stopwatch, a practice which, though it may perhaps have been encouraged by the operators themselves, must have been productive of most mischievous consequences, end quote. Pott also pointed out that a surgeon needs more than manual dexterity to be successful, and stressed the need for judgment as to when not to operate as being an important asset for the successful surgeon, which I think is a pretty modern idea. He felt that this could be gained only from years of experience and not from reading about surgery or spending a few months on hospital rounds. And his comments on informed consent seemed to be ahead of his time. Quote, To be able to foretell approaching mischief is as necessary to a practitioner as to predict success. Friends and relations have a right to be informed of the motives of a surgeon's conduct. And what is still more, he should be able to satisfy himself that it is rational and that he does his duty, end quote. Now, Sir Percival Pott, as mentioned earlier, was a prolific scientific writer as well, but there's an interesting story on how that came about. In 1756, at the age of 42, Pott was riding to the hospital on Old Kent Road in Southwark when he was thrown from his horse. Now, while some less informed sources will tell you that he sustained a Pott's fracture, which I'll explain later, what he actually had was a compound fracture of the tibia. Now, Pott refused to be moved and sent his servant to buy a door from a nearby construction site. He then had two porters with poles carry him to his home, a journey of two miles. There, a number of surgical colleagues gathered and came to the conclusion that Pott's leg should be amputated, which would have been standard treatment at the time. Now, in fact, the instruments were already laid out when his old master, Edward Nurse, arrived in a gallop and advised taking the chance on conservative treatment. Now, amazingly enough, Pott kept himself out of the conversation. Nurse won the argument, the bone was reduced and splinted, and Pott retained a usable leg. Now, this left him with plenty of time during recovery to work on his writing, and later that year he published a Treaty on Ruptures, which refuted many of the old theories on the cause and treatment of hernias, or bubonocele as it was sometimes called then. Now, why, you ask? A bubo is from the ancient Greek bubon for groin or swelling in the groin, and bubos would later come to mean inflamed swelling of a lymph node, especially in the armpit or groin, from things such as the bubonic plague. Anyways, one theory Pott did not subscribe to was the broken peritoneum theory, as he understood that no matter the size of the hernia sac, the peritoneum was merely stretched but never torn. 
He was also an enthusiastic advocate of early operations for constricted hernias. Now, in fact, Pott was interested in a wide variety of surgical fields, writing about fractures and dislocations, cataracts and other eye disorders, bladder hernias, hydrocele's, fistula and ano, and head trauma. Now, because of his wide areas of interest, a number of conditions have been named after him. So let's go over a few of them quickly. There's Pott's fracture, which is loosely applied to a variety of ankle fractures, and not the tibial fracture he sustained on the horse riding accident we covered. Pott was an early advocate of anatomically reducing the fracture as part of the treatment. Now there's Pott's gangrene, which is an insufficient blood supply to the legs, typically associated with age, and Pott's puffy tumor, which is a subperiosteal abscess, meaning an abscess underneath the fibrous covering on a bone, which is associated with osteomyelitis of the frontal bone and causes swelling of the forehead, which usually forms as a complication of frontal sinusitis or trauma. But my personal favorite is Pott's disease, which is compression of the spinal cord due to collapse of the vertebral bodies infected with tuberculosis. Now, he described this in 1779 and again in 1782, but was actually preceded by a little-known work by Jean-Pierre David, who also published on the topic in 1779, but sometimes life's not fair, so it's Pott's disease and not David's disease. The Pott did not make a direct association of the diseased vertebrae with TB, but referred to the condition as a manifestation of scrofula, which you remember is the old-timey name for TB involving lymph nodes. In fact, it wasn't until the 19th century that the precise connection was made. Now, Pott described a number of therapies, including surgical intervention, which was to form a draining sinus tract, one of the earliest descriptions of surgery on the spinal cord. He treated several patients this way, placing either a seton or a kidney bean into a cauterized area to maintain a draining sinus tract in communication with an abscess next to a vertebrae. Now this would put the patient at risk for a secondary bacterial infection, but probably at least relieve the pressure on the spinal cord, making the patient's symptoms improve. Now, quick side note, a seton is a cord of material, originally cotton, silk, or even horsehair, which was placed in a fistula tract to hold it open. That's an ancient technique described by Hippocrates as well as Albucasis and some ancient Chinese practitioners. The word comes from the Latin seta, meaning bristle. There's a lot of interesting history there, and I may cover it in an episode. We'll see. But anyways, what may be Pott's most impactful writing, which came out in 1775, was an essay only five pages long, part of a collection entitled Surgical Observations Relative to the Cataract, the Polypus of the Nose, and the Cancer of the Scrotum. And it's that last part that we're interested in. So Pott described an association between exposure to soot and a high incidence of scrotal cancer, technically squamous cell carcinoma, which was seen in chimney sweeps. Now this is considered the first occupational link to a cancer and would lead to major reforms in the industry. Prior to Pott, the lesions found on the scrotums of chimney sweeps was thought to be a venereal disease, meaning a sexually transmitted disease. Venereal, related to Venus, goddess of love, you get it. But he argued that the disease arose due to soot being lodged in the folds of the scrotum, and while he introduced the idea of a carcinogenic substance, it would take until the early part of the 20th century to determine that the offending chemical was benzopyrene. From Pot, quote, the chimney sweeper's cancer is a disease initially localized to the lower part of the scrotum, where it produces a superficial, painful, atypical ulcer of irregular shape with hard and raised edges. Chimney sweepers call that soot wart. 
I've never noticed it before puberty, and I think that is the reason why it has been mistaken for an ulcer both by the patient and the clinician and treated as such with mercurial remedies. Quick note of explanation there, mercury was a frequent treatment for syphilis in the pre-antibiotic era. It is a hard fate that afflicts these people. During their early childhood, they are usually treated with the greatest brutality, freezing and nearly starving to death. They have to squeeze themselves up through narrow and sometimes hot chimneys where they tear and burn themselves, and on reaching puberty, they become peculiarly sensitive to a troubling, deadly illness which apparently results from deposits of soot in the skin folds of the scrotum, end quote. Napot emphasized early excision as the only chance for cure, and through his discovery became part of the campaign for improved labor laws. And he certainly was empathetic to their situation, saying, quote, The fate of these people seems peculiarly hard. They are treated with great brutality. They are thrust up narrow and sometimes hot chimneys, where they are bruised, burned, and almost suffocated. And when they get to puberty, they become liable to a most noisome, painful, and fatal disease, end quote. The first Chimney Sweepers Act was put into effect in 1788, likely due to Pott's influence, which forbade masters to employ more than six apprentices, as well as to forbid the recruitment of children under the age of eight. However, the debate dragged on into the 19th century as the act was largely ignored. In a report to the British Parliament in 1817, these children were described as being very small and skinny. They were allegedly lured away from home or even kidnapped, but were considered runaways and employed as climbing boys. Sometimes poor and desperate parents would sell them for a few pounds to master sweepers. From the age of four or five, they were forced to work, sliding down inside narrow flues to remove accumulated soot. These were tiny, typically no more than 30 centimeters across or one foot, and they would have had to work their way through winding passages, often naked, and would go through bottlenecks and crawl along the horizontal sections where soot tended to accumulate. To harden their bodies, they'd be scrubbed with salt water, and when they lost consciousness in the shafts, which occurred occasionally, hay would be burned to create smoke to revive them. These boys would sometimes be stranded and die from suffocation. But given the cost to replace these flues, as well as the dangers of pollution by smoke, risk of chimney fires and carbon monoxide poisoning, it was deemed an acceptable trade, and opposition to reform lasted for nearly a century. In fact, it wasn't until the Chimney Sweepers Act was passed in 1875, which required that chimney sweepers be authorized by the police to work in a district, that there was a legal means to enforce the legislation. All right, let's wrap this thing up. In early December of 1788, after walking in severe weather, 20 miles from London, to see a patient, Pott developed pneumonia and became very ill. While on his deathbed, he said, quote, My lamp is almost extinguished. I hope it is burned for the benefit of others. End quote. He died on December 22nd, just a couple of weeks shy of his 75th birthday. Percival Pott was buried in the little city church of St. Mary's Aldermary, near St. Bartholomew's, the site of his life's work. Now, during that life, he had married in the year 1740 and had five sons and four daughters. And in fact, his son-in-law, Sir James Earl, himself a surgeon at St. Bart's, wrote his biography, which was available in 1790. The inscription on his tomb, which was written by one of his sons, who became an archdeacon at St. Albans, reads, quote, While he learned from his predecessors, he also discovered their errors and set them right, pointed out their shortcomings and filled them. Original in thought, quick in judgment, and decisive in action, he put knowledge to its proper use, end quote. It's funny to think that Pott lived through the separation of barbers and surgeons 
and the beginnings of the field of surgery becoming a respectable and accepted part of medicine. Pott himself used to joke that he was the last barber-surgeon apprentice to have been appointed to St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Let's end on a quote from him reflecting on a career in surgery. Quote, Surgery has undergone many great transformations during the past 50 years, and many are to be thanked for their contributions. Yet, when we think of how many remain to be made, it should rather stimulate our inventiveness than fuel our vanity, end quote. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to be taking a little break over the holidays, but we'll be back at it in the new year. I'm hoping to put out another short bonus episode, though, so watch for that. And I'm working away at another little project that I'll tell you more about soon. And when we resume the regularly scheduled programming, we'll cover the German surgeon August Beer, who is a leader in spinal and regional anesthetics and for whom the Beer Block is named. Now, in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.